Welcome to this podcast series on inclusion and education from the University of Leeds. Our research brings together experts in education, childhood and youth studies with an aim to promote equality across family, education, policy, legal and community settings. To read more about our work, please visit the School of Education website. You can find this link and others discussed during the podcast in the programme description. Hello, my name is Luke McFarlane and welcome to the Inclusion and Education podcast from the University of Leeds. Today we have got two very special guests, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Lou Harvey from the School of Education. I'm a member of the IC Research Group and I'm currently lecturer in language education. Uh, My name is Paul Cook. I'm Professor of World Cinemas at the University of Leeds and I'm the uh, Principal Investigator of a AHRC Network Plus project called Changing the Story, Building Civil Society with and for Young People in Post-Conflict Settings. And it's through that project that I've come to work with the wonderful Lou Harvey. So for today's episode, we're going to be speaking about uh, your paper on transrational communication in South Africa, that you were meeting with young people in South Africa and trying to communicate through like language barriers. Could you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, so so I've so out of the, the, the stuff that I've been working on Lou on. So Lou is part of the Changing the Story project. She's been running the kind of consolidating learning strand where she's been drawing together all the kind of learning from across the project. But predating that, Lou and I have been working with the Bishop Simeon Trust now for some time working on a kind of participatory action research project where we've been using the arts to think about how we can support community resilience, support young people to basically articulate their problems as they see them as opposed to the way the world sees them. My starting point for this was through the use of participatory filmmaking. So I'm a filmmaker uh, and had done a number of projects where I've been kind of like looking at community voices, I suppose, or looking at kind of community perspectives. And through that work, uh, I came into contact with Martin Key, who runs the Bishop Simeon Trust. And he started to see this work as a kind of really important or really or potentially a really important tool for some, uh, some, some work that he was doing around youth leadership. So he works with a series of community-based organisations in South Africa called Safe Parks. And Safe Parks are kind of out-of-school clubs, I guess. They kind of support vulnerable young people to stay in full-time education. Uh, They give them a safe place away from the various predators that prey upon young people in townships in South Africa to do their homework, to, uh, to get a meal, very important. And then also to kind of develop what you might call life skills, I suppose. And... A central tenant of this is really trying to kind of support these people that frankly sees you know society at best ignores and at worst preys upon to actually see them as kind of active citizens in modern South Africa right to see them as kind of people that can have agency and so I've been working with Martin for quite some time on a participatory filmmaking project where we use film to help young people present the world as they see it in order to raise awareness of issues that they see as important to them and we've been using using film to kind of explore this and this is then subsequently kind of developed into or was developing into a more formal kind of youth leadership program that interestingly was getting picked up by some of the national agencies we were beginning a project working with the national association of childcare workers for example and so we've been doing this work for quite some time and it's at this point that 
I got to know Lou. Well, I'd known Lou before that, but I actually started to talk to Lou about her work. And Lou made the very obvious point was, you know, where where are the specialists in education? This is an education program. And I, and I thought, you know, you're absolutely right, Lou. I think the only solution is for you to join the project. So I came to um, I came to this project to, as Paul says, really bring that educational perspective to it and to try and analyse what learning is happening here, and particularly through the arts and particularly in relation to voice, because voice was really our key concept. I mean, Paul's mentioned agency and citizenship and leadership, and it is all, all those things. But voice is kind of the, the key lens through which we're looking at all those those concepts. And I'm interested particularly in how this how voice is kind of expressed or is manifest through the arts. Um, and the time that I was able to spend there was only quite a short time. I mean, over the first the first iteration of the project was um, about a year, I think, Paul, is that right, altogether? And I was able to be there for two separate weeks within that time. So so as you can imagine, coming in to do something ethnographic, that's actually a really, really short time. And so I had to, uh, you know, apply kind of principles of short-term ethnography specifically to that. But yes, when when I got there, I, I quickly realised, in, in a way that I'd known intellectually before, but it's one thing to know something intellectually and then another thing to actually experience it in the field. I, I just, I found the the kind of, the assumptions that I'd had as a qualitative researcher just were had to go completely out the window. Um, and being a qualitative researcher, you sort of assume fundamentally that you're going to understand that you're going to be able to use language to talk to people, to do interviews, to find out what things mean, to say what are you doing and why you're doing it, and to assume that they have, you know, the, the capacity to kind of respond to you on similar terms. And of course, I found in South Africa that this wasn't going to be the case. You know, I was there as um, a white person, um, an adult, an academic from the global north, um, working with these kids who are, you know, obviously in the global south, they're all, all black people on the township. The, 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 you know, a lot of English was what English is obviously widely spoken, and a lot of the kids spoke some English as well. But because it's such a multilingual context, it it didn't make sense for them just to speak English to me, especially given the kind of relationships and the power differentials that were there. Um, they have a very sort of multilingual approach to languages. So I realised very quickly that this wasn't going to work in the terms that I had probably kind of assumed it was going to work in. Thank you very much. Paul, you touched on the idea of participatory arts. And can I just ask, could you loosely define them and also why you chose exactly to use them? Yeah, that's a really, really important question. You know, why participatory arts? Well, I think the first thing to say is that we're not alone in using participatory arts. Participatory practices in development have been kind of, in, they've become the new orthodoxy really ever since sort of the late, um, the, the, the 1990s and um, Chambers' notion of rapid rural appraisal, etc. So, so this notion that you need to engage with the so-called beneficiaries in order to develop your your programs is kind of, is, is, you know, is, uh, is considered to be a kind of the normal now really. Um, sort of challenging that kind of sense of like in 1970s where you'd have these massive mega projects being kind of imposed on you know, governments would decide that this is what a community wanted and the community would just have to put up with it. So we've seen this massive shift in international development. But what's really interesting is whilst there's loads of practice, particularly in post-conflict settings, using participatory practices and also within that, like a real kind of 
interest in using participatory arts of all shapes and sizes from theatre. So, I mean, probably theatre is one of the starting points with the um, pedagogy of the oppressed through to filmmaking that we're using, participatory filmmaking. But like, you know, going via radio, going via grassroots comics, music, all sorts of different arts are used for all sorts of different reasons. There's very little kind of cross-learning and very little kind of sort of rigorous evaluation, I suppose, of these of these programmes. Kind of in some sometimes they're, they're sort of seen as an unadulterated good without actually looking at the challenges of using of using this stuff. So change the story was really set up with those two principles in mind. On the one hand, to help resource strapped civil society organisations to share learning, to give them space for reflection and a way for very obvious reasons they just didn't have, because they're always very focused on delivering the services to their frontline users and also hustling for the next tranche of funding. So allowing them to reflect and actually to honestly reflect and think about things that don't work as much as things that do work is kind of like difficult within the funding funding space. It's one of the really cool things about the GCRF funding, which was about partnership work between the international development community and universities. It created that kind of space for honest reflection, you know, which is obviously being cut now with the, the government's cut to ODA funding. So when we were, yeah, so so lots of people are interested in participatory arts, participatory arts being arts-based practices that are driven by people in communities. In this sense, in this, in this case, um, the vulnerable children that we're working with, where the agenda is set by them and where art is used in all forms to kind of create a space for reflection, for allow, to allow them to kind of, people talk about it being a safe space. I don't really think that good art can be safe. I think it's more of a kind of place beyond the formal structures within which they generally operate to give them a space that they can kind of just reflect on things from a kind of different angle. And that's really what we were trying to do. And we were using, in our case, we used participatory video because it was a really good hook to, to get the kids involved. You know, there was a real interest in learning about filmmaking. But what was very interesting working with Lou was actually seeing, well, there was a whole host of other ways in which participatory arts were communicating with us that I hadn't really thought about. I thought about the arts very much as a kind of um, advocacy tool, as giving um, the young people that we were working with the opportunity to amplify their voice, to engage in kind of you know, global conversations that they wouldn't necessarily always think that they could uh, engage with. But working with Lou, I saw that there was so much more going on. Yeah, there's a, there's, I mean, this is one of the one of the things that we look at in the article, isn't it? There's the, there's voice in the sense that, you know, most people would understand and and kind of you know lay people outside the academy would understand where you're kind of expressing, you're expressing yourself, you're articulating something, or you've got a message, um, and and that was really important. These young people did have a message, and there were specific things that they wanted to say, but there was also a lot of stuff beyond that. Um, and actually, it was just in, in a lot of ways, it was the, the fact of being seen and being heard and being sort of articulable that in itself was really important beyond what was actually being said. There was at the at the very beginning when I when I went to the safe park and, you know, when I described this in the article, I was uh, they, they knew that I was coming. You know, they knew that the researcher was coming and, and it was it was kind of an event for them. And they and they sort of laid on for me a particular kind of performance of voice, which I assume was what they sort of thought would be best recognised by me as an educator, as a researcher and so on. And all these all these young people were sitting in this this classroom. It was kind of a big shipping container was the classroom and they'd lined all their chairs up along the wall in a straight row. 
and the care worker who was sort of the group leader was standing in front of them so it was a very sort of teacher-centered setup and then he would ask individual children to come out and talk about their stories which they'd written down their life stories basically so they'd kind of written these down and he asked them to read them out and some of some of those were in english some of those were were in in a variety of languages and there were other care workers around me who were sort of translating bits and pieces and whispering things in my ear, you know. But I was able to to put together quite easily that this was really awful stuff that the, these kids were talking about, about the, the abuse that had just become kind of normalised in their lives. And I could see that actually there was a power to them writing that down and talking about it because it brought to consciousness something that was awful that perhaps they had they just sort of taken for granted before so i could see the value in that potentially but i also felt like gosh you know the 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 safe park have i think made an assumption about what i want to hear and i think they'd assumed that because i was coming to listen to the young people's voices that that meant i wanted to hear the stories of their lives um which wasn't necessarily true what i what i wanted was to go there and just hear whatever they wanted to tell me and engage with whatever they wanted to tell me. Um, And there was a huge difference then between that event, which was very clearly to me set up by the adults. I mean, the the, the young people were participating. They weren't unwilling, but they, they were complying with it. But there was a big difference then between that and the break time when we all went outside and the and the children were playing games, singing and dancing. They were so much more active with me, whereas before I'd been sort of sitting off to the side and they were looking at me slightly warily and sort of looking at me and giggling behind their hands and stuff and being a bit shy. And then suddenly when we went outside, it was completely transformed like completely inverted and they were in charge and they were telling me what to do and I was I was still uncomfortable but whereas before I'd been uncomfortable sort of on their behalf this time I was only uncomfortable on my behalf. Reading through your article I think there was a lot of engagement which was almost non-verbal. How important was it to get away from like a logocentric communication and how did you manage this? It wasn't something that I had thought of in those explicit terms as being important because like I said before I'd assumed naively and I should also add a caveat at this point that before this project I'd never worked with children and young people I'd only worked with you know in intercultural education with adults and very often in higher education so I realise a lot of the stuff that I'm saying about my learning is going to be very familiar to people who are are used to researching with children and young people you know these are not I'm not presenting these as new issues but yeah, yeah, I hadn't sort of explicitly thought about kind of moving away from logocentric education. But I realise now that that has really always been implicit in my work with the arts anyway. And I think what the experience in South Africa helped me to do was to sort of articulate that myself and bring that to consciousness. Because it put me in the situation where actually the logocentric communication wasn't really available or at least wasn't available as centrally as it had been before. As to how we did that, well, I mean, the arts was facilitating that for us anyway. You know, the, the, the project was already sort of premised on that. And all all the activities that were going on were all things that the young people chose for themselves. I mean, the sort of, you know, the, the collaging that I was um, I was sort of, you know, participating into sort of witnessing at the beginning, you know, that would that that had just kind of happened spontaneously. The the games and 
or I should say spontaneously as I encountered it, you know, I'm sure that there would be other kind of reasonings going on among the children that I wasn't party to. But, you know, the games, the singing, the dancing, these were all things that they wanted to do. So that sort of non, those non-logocentric approaches or means were already there. And I didn't have to kind of try hard to access them. What was difficult was to say, what what is voice in these events? And how do I conceptualise it? And, you know, and how how do I define it? And in fact, how do you conceptualise something that in many ways looks what we might think of as non-conceptual? And I think this is where in the paper the term transrational was really useful because it showed it. it, I think that the trans, the idea of trans, that movement across and through and beyond is a way to work with what might look like a dichotomy. So you might think, okay, there's the singing and dancing and playing going on. This is not sort of, this hasn't been thought through cognitively. It's not being analysed cognitively in the way that we would do as education researchers or as researchers more broadly. But that is obviously still part of what's going on. There's still going to be cognitive engagements on the parts of these young people and on my part as well. But how do you then sort of reconcile that with all the other stuff, all the embodied stuff, all the group stuff that's going on? And I think transrational and I'm very, very kind of embryonic in my own understandings of this term because it's it's sort of it's very new. And I think the paper just represents my own first foray into it. But I think it has really exciting potential to help us think more inclusively and more sort of fairly about education and communication, because it helps us to think about all all the things that are going on when people are learning and playing and educating um, through the arts or otherwise. I think the only thing with the arts is the arts just makes it sort of more obvious and more visible. Um, But I think that actually we're learning holistically in all sorts of domains, even where the arts aren't necessarily present. Can I pick up something on there? I mean, what what I think is really interesting about this is that this also really picks up the kind of the power of interdisciplinary working. Because because everything you said there, Lou, obviously we discussed this and I know that, but I've never really thought about you. I've never really thought about the way the way you've just joined all those things up. But that totally chimes in with the way. I've understood my trajectory through participatory filmmaking in this project over a number of years, right? So the starting point for our project, this is before I met Lou, was um, was basically um, asking young people to think about representation, to think about the way the world sees them on film. And so my kind of starting gambit really was, I'm a professor of world cinemas. This is how images of South African townships circulate on world cinema screens. And by world cinema screens, we basically mean screens in Western and Northern cinemas. Right. This is what this is what the world sees, sees of you and your community. What do you think? Is this you? Does this represent you? If you had cameras, what would how would you want to represent the world? And we, and we went through this whole kind of process of trying to kind of, you know, so that's the starting point for the filmmaking it was about trying to talk back to world cinema screens. And for the first couple of iterations of the project, it was really interesting. They came out with loads of kind of issue-based things, you know, the, the stories of trauma, just like Lou, Lou was saying. But in the breaks, they I just give them the cameras and they take the cameras home or they do whatever they wanted with them. And they, they'd invariably be making music videos and invariably be, be singing and, and whatever. And that kind of went on for like the first week as we were kind of doing it. But I wasn't really seeing those, I wasn't seeing that stuff because they were taking the cameras. I didn't really see this stuff until I got the footage back home after we'd made the, the, the proper film as it were. 
And there's a real sense of whilst I was saying to them, you know, what what story do you want to make? There was clearly a, at least an implicit sense of their response to that was, well, well, what do you think? What's the story that you would want us to want to make? Yeah. So it's still it was still about me driving an agenda of empowerment, as a, which is obviously you can't do that. Right. And so after after several iterations, we've tried to kind of go beyond the issue film, if you like, or or come back to it. I, I think it's probably fair to say so. So to sort of like give a sense that I think now within the we, we've been we've been doing kind of I don't know how many iterations of this project now that we've done with with our, with our um, colleagues in South Africa. And they've and they've done loads of kind of, you know, jumping around. We've got loads of videos of them sort of like doing mad dives into swimming pools and all sorts of stuff, you know, that, that just stuff that they want to capture or stuff of them dancing or stuff of them kind of performing or doing plays or whatever it is that they want to do. We've got loads of that. And we've also got the issue films, if you like, and they've been used in different ways. So so whilst for me, what I was trying to do was trying to use permissiveness as a way of trying to get to the true kind of story that they wanted to advocate for. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of use this to get back to where I thought I was starting from. Actually, what's happened is we've had a, it's completely changed the way that we thought about advocacy. And we thought about filmmaking and we thought about what we've collectively been doing in our work over there. So what I kind of find fascinating there is speaking about where the project has kind of come from. Where, from your perspective, do you think from the results and from your project, where do you think the research will continue? What what kind of like are the developments pushing forward? You know, basically, we've been very fortunate. We've been very fortunate with getting funding. We've had a series of HRC projects that we've been able to develop in order to kind of um, develop this work further. And currently, we're working on a project with Hope and Homes for Children and Deaf Kids International, as well as the Bishop Simeon Trust, in order to develop the work in two different directions. On the one hand, we're trying to develop our leadership programme so that it's more inclusive particularly inclusive of the deaf community. So deafness is a very particular disability in the sense that it's quite frequently ignored. People aren't aware that it's there or it masks other issues. So there'll be sort of a intellectual disability will be diagnosed when in fact a, a, a kid can't hear. And so what we're trying to do is trying to unpack that. We're trying to use, uh, develop a program where we have a more inclusive approach to disability in the safe parts using the films as a starting point for a more inclusive discussion to raise awareness of this issue in those communities and beyond. So on the one hand, we're trying to do that. But also what we're also trying to do is we're trying to think about how we can use our conceptualization of voice to to change the power dynamic in these kinds of projects and to make the young people, the beneficiaries directly accountable or directly driving the accountability of the project so that the young people themselves are not only just evaluating it, but can also decide what should happen next, where, where the projects should go. So, so we're trying to kind of really put young people into the driving seat of this kind of work as a kind of pilot for a broader intervention around childcare. This is where the uh, Hope and Homes for Children come in. So they're sort of making this into trying to, trying to draw out the learning from our project around the value of making projects directly accountability to young people themselves, rather than being fundamentally accountable to the funders which is the case at the moment look sort of making the argument that if we make them more accountable to young people they ultimately become more effective they drive change quicker and ultimately it's going to be cheaper for funders if we do this so hope and homes for children are kind of like working with us on that and they're doing some international advocacy at policy level on, on uh, in, in in that regard so that's a project that we're just starting now so inclusion and youth accountability 
And at the same time, we're also using that to kind of develop our theoretical model, working now with colleagues at the University of Pretoria. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think that's that's a good place for me to pick up, actually. I think it's been it's very important now for us to be working with the colleagues in South Africa, because in the previous iterations, even though we, we were working with, you know, the, the arts colleagues, we weren't working with academic colleagues. And I think that we need we need to have that sort of academic theoretical input from colleagues in South Africa now. And I think there are sort of well, I mean, there's many ways in which that's important, but I think there's two sort of theoretical directions that I'd, I'd really like to see the work go in. The first is really developing this kind of idea of the transrational and bringing in a, a wider range of perspectives on voice, which I think we've, we've started to do in our article because, you know, I come from language education into cultural education um, and my thinking about voice has come from that paradigm which in itself is quite broad you know there's it kind of brings together materiality and politics and the message of the voice and so on but I think that my first forays into um, music and singing theory bringing that singing theory in has really helped me to think differently about the the embodiment of the voice and the material of the voice so I'd like to explore that a bit more and looking at perspectives on voice from music and singing and theatre and the, the performing arts more broadly I think and to think about how this contributes to decolonization and thinking about voice and learning in more decolonized ways than we currently do so that's one perspective the the other thing which is you know it's something that I've been quite uncomfortable about I'm still quite uncomfortable about the idea of language language in the sense of named languages so all the sort of different multilingualisms that were going on because i didn't have access to those and i still had very valuable data without them and actually not having the understanding opened up perspectives that might not have opened up had i had it you know so it's still worth talking about all the stuff that we've talked about but i'm aware as well that you know my lack of understanding is a is is a very sort of it's an effect of colonialism you know it's an effect of being a researcher from the global north who's sort of largely monolingual certainly monolingual in for, for research purposes and you know a, a lot of assumptions that i've made that we've made as a project that the gcrf makes as a funder um you know there's a lot there that's very problematic and i think that what needs to happen now you know if, if not in this particular iteration of the project but in the future is to think about Okay, we've got all these different sort of forms of communication, all these different ways in which uh, voice is being produced. How do languages in a very highly politicised linguistic context, how do languages also co come into that as named languages? You know, what's the difference between being a young person speaking Zulu to a young person speaking Songa, which I believe is one of the languages, you know, it's an official language, but it's fairly low down. Um, in the hierarchy in South Africa. So what do all these things mean and how do these kind of play into all, all these complexities around voice that are going on? And I think, again, this is something that working with colleagues in the global south will enable us to engage with a little bit better. And I think, you know, this is additional to the, the sort of points that, that Paul mentioned, and particularly the, the points about sort of disabilities and different abilities and deafness you know again that's that, that sort of those ideas about kind of alternative communications and augmented communication those are all really essential to bring in as well so yeah there's a lot there I think I think it's incredibly rich. Dr Harvey and Professor Cook thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening 
For more information about our work, please visit the School of Education website. If you have any questions about our research, or if you would like to study with us at the University of Leeds, you can contact the Research Centre Director, Professor Michaelis Contopodis, for further details. You will find all relevant links and contact details in the programme description.